New Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring consciousness and fine art. My guest is James Tunney, a Renaissance man who is an attorney who has lectured all over the world on international law. In addition, he is a poet, a scholar, and a fine artist. He is author of The Mystical Accord Sutras to Suit Our Times, Lines for Spiritual Evolution. The Mystery of the Trapped Light, Mystical Thoughts in the Dark Age of Scientism, as well as two dystopian novels, Blue Lies September and Ireland, I Don't Recognize Who She Is. James has exhibited his artwork throughout Scandinavia and also in London. He lives in Gothenburg, Sweden, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, James. I'm very happy to be with you once again. Uh, thanks very much, Jeffrey. I, I was just reminded of that American comedy where the family arrive at the Louvre and they, they, they arrive late because they've been gone around the roundabout and they're outside and the father says, quick, we've got 15 minutes to see all the great art treasures of the world. So I'll try not and do that today. I'll try and, and listen to your questions a bit better. Well, the, the world of art is so vast. You could spend all day in the Louvre and you would only really be able to appreciate a, a portion of it. And, you know, my own experience visiting some of the great museums is that after, let's say, two hours, I can't absorb any more, e even if it's right in front of me. I, it takes a while to digest all of that uh, visual stimulus. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably not as long as you because that, I agree, it's overwhelming because we're talking about a concentration which is decontextualized and I, I have that thing as well. So usually when I'm going into a gallery now, um, I focus on one thing or, or, or focus on something I haven't seen before. And I suppose uh, painting, of course, when we're talking about painting, we can narrow it down substantially so we don't include the entire spectrum of art. Well, I suppose as a starting point, when we talk about fine art, we're talking about images. And I know occasionally there will be words that are part of a painting. I know you include words occasionally in your paintings, but by and large, the, the visual arts are a nonverbal form of communication. Um, that's true and it's not true. Um, it's a general description of an area which is not related to words. On the other hand, if we look back at the great illuminated manuscripts of the Celtic word, we see a marriage of figure and the, uh, the word. Uh, and that, that comes also in later if we look at uh, Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat or Warhol or some of the more recent uh, successful modern artists, are, uh, they also utilize the word. And one of the greatest minds, in my view, uh, in history, Hildegard of Bingen, uh, used pictures and words also to illustrate uh, a, our mystical experience nearly a thousand years ago. 
And later on, the, remember that the Celtic monks had a big influence on continental Europe before that time uh, in, in Switzerland and Germany and, and elsewhere. And also, when we come to look at Jung's drawings, he has a mixture of words and uh, and images. So it's there, and most of, of painting is seen to not involve words. I've used words, and in fact, some of the more popular of my paintings have involved uh, words because people can relate to that a bit easier uh, without having to engage in understanding where something fits in with, in the tradition. Well, to oversimplify things a bit, I suppose you could say that when you combine words and images, you're speaking to both the right and the left hemispheres of the brain. I think that's right. I think the idea of the image is critical in relation to understanding psychology, in relation to understanding mystical experience. That in in most contexts, apart from clairaudience audi uh, and contexts where people hear words, often they see visions. Sometimes they go together. Like in the context of St. Paul, some of the observers didn't hear the words, but they saw light, for example. So we can have different perspectives uh, on that. But the, the some people, as you as you well know, but as I've read about, some people think more literally. They think in terms of words, and they don't think in terms of images. Some people are more biased towards images, and the two parts of the brain certainly, or parts of the brain, work differently. And I, I've been reading about autistic children and the need to manage the relationship between the flow of images. And, and the flow of words and the relationship between them. So in some senses, we are accessing uh, different parts of the brain and they, they can puncture con consciousness in, in different ways. But uh, they, they operate in a, in a symbiotic relationship. Um, but it does make us think about what the image is and what the significance of the image is. Because in terms of painting, it's the image which is critical. And I would argue also that the image is the basis of mystical experience and also the basis of revelation. And uh, But then we also have to consider the notion of sound as well, but that's for another day. There are scholars who would claim that before human beings ever developed uh, a written language, they thought primarily in images and that the earliest forms of writing were pictograms. I think it's fairly, if we look back at the most ancient paintings, the the cave paintings all around the world, and in particular a period of, of about 40,000 years ago, whether we're in Australia or in Europe, uh, and there's been recent discoveries of fantastic uh, art in, Col in Colombia, uh, in, in, the, in the high jungle, so we have fantastic galleries of art, and we, we see similar symbols arrive, or arising in each context. There's often a recurrence of animals, and that can mean a number of things. Of course, there's a, there's a relationship to the animals they ate, although many animals that they didn't eat were represented. So people, from the time they sat around a fire, could also pick up the charcoal and begin to, to draw things and begin to, to make symbols, and begin to represent things. And obviously, a picture is the easiest way to denote something or to, or to signify something. So I, I, th there's no doubt about that. And there's also the idea that 
symbols are important and on a deeper subconscious level. And if we, we look at certain philosophers like Owen Barfield, uh, he talked about the idea of uh, a deeper participation in relation to the world beforehand that we have lost. And to a certain extent, the uh, people may have had more access to interrelationships uh, in which context symbols may have been easier to represent the processes that were, were going on around them. I think you know I recently interviewed Betty Kovacs, and the topic of that interview was the language of the soul. And essentially, she's saying that in our dreams and in what she calls the mundus imaginalis, where the soul creates language, it's largely symbolic. It's largely visual. I heard that interview, and I found it very enjoyable. And uh, I agree with her, basically, because when we're talking about the image, when we're talking about painting, uh, image, imagination, imaginal, we're in the same area. That's that's the context we're talking about. Uh, so, uh, and yes, and she, she talked about why people were uh, painting and why they did these cave paintings. I agree with her interpretation. And I would also add another interpretation that I used to live in Cantabria in the north of Spain. So, I've, uh, I've been to a lot of these caves, and in some of the caves, the special pictures of the animals are deeper in from the main, the main chambers. And it suggests to me that these may have been initiation sites and that the particular animals that they represented, which were not always the animals they ate in certain contexts, uh, represented the spirit animals that they were going to encounter and the the uh, terianotropes and the human animal figures were representing the imaginal world they were going to enter in those states through the darkness or perhaps with, with other with aid of other substances but simply through the darkness they would be able to uh, encounter those beings so yes i i and i would also in support of uh, betty uh, stand against a very materialist analysis because there are a lot of scientists now who are dismissing this and this looking for the lowest common denominator explanation in relation to all these cases so that there was always a simple pragmatic reason why they did this and they failed to engage in the higher value experiential uh, force and uh, endeavor that was behind these these uh, uh, arts and uh, expressions. Well, I'm under the impression that in ancient times, not only the visual arts, but even poetry and drama were all designed to have an initiatory impact on people, to take them into the spirit realms, into altered states of consciousness. And I think that even today in this so-called modern and postmodern era, a lot of art is still designed to do that. I'm a bit reluctant to to to, to describe that experience in, in in the contemporary context because it includes a lot. But yes, all art is associated in some way with changing consciousness. Um, the reason why it's changing consciousness is important as well. It's not always a good reason. We have to understand that images can be used to manipulate us. So, in my view, there's a spectrum associated with the image. Bacon talked about the difference between genuine painting and mere illustration. 
and I agree with him on that. So at one end is what he would describe as mere illustration, which didn't have deep artistic merit. That's not to put to, to say anything bad about illustrators or, or some of the great illustrators like Norman Rockwell in the United States who transformed it into a, an art form. But, but in relation, to, he, he, what he's talking about is where someone is illustrating an image for another purpose, as a servant of someone else, as opposed to as a service, uh, as a servant of the psyche or the spirit. And in the context of propaganda, of course, we have to consider that the image can be utilized for other purposes. So in all these cases, yes, we're changing the consciousness, but the integrity of the artist or the motivation of the artist and the motivation of their image in the context is important in relation to the final ends of that. Uh, yes, poetry for me is very, very important in relation to changing states, but it's not, it's deeper than that because you've talked before about receiving poetry in your in your your dreams uh, and uh, I, i've also had that experience sometimes i wake up with words in, in my my mind or sentences and i don't know where they come from i don't know what they mean it's like flotsam and jetsam but then you have to see where they fit in sometimes they solve solutions to problems you didn't know you had uh, sometimes they're riddles and this is this is the language of the the koan of the subconscious of the oracles and I, I think that in the end, if, if, for example, which we'll talk about again, the, in some dystopian future where human qualities are taken away, two of the most important surviving qualities will be uh, humor and poetry, because poetry is something which is quite difficult at the moment, or will be difficult, for computers or even artificial intelligence to engage in, because it's a higher level metaphorical uh, power, uh, which requires a, a, a relationship, a, a, a metaphorical connection, analogy, a different type of thinking. Uh, that, that's very, very important. But yes, poetry is very, very important. The visual image can do this. Uh, Bacon said that you have to remember that a, a painting operates on someone's nervous system. So when you're, it's the same point that you were making about coming into a gallery. It's affecting your nervous system. That's a very, very simple idea, but it's true. It goes into your into your head, into your physical form. People retain images in their mind. So it's very, very powerful. We allow these images in all the time. And if we engage with a, a painting, thinking about the artist, thinking about the experience, thinking about the context, we can attain a deep relationship which takes us out of our own consciousness. And I think that one of the greatest values of paintings is to help us see something differently because seeing is 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 a critical part of, uh, of of the process of the image and we have the process of seeing and the process of looking well you have been a painter as i understand it a fine art painter it really began in in your childhood can you talk about what it was like as a child to begin that process for you what were you were reaching for I was brought up with five sisters in Dublin, and I discovered I have another one in California, uh, which is great. But there was so you're always influenced by the people that are around you. And I remember very distinctly that there would be certain books, for example, around the house that, say, my older sister had that you'd pick up and you say, "Well, what's this?" As you're small, I remember one on yoga, for example, that I read intensely and began to practice yoga. Uh, none of my mates were doing yoga, but at the time. Um, 
but I also remember distinctly seeing a book about Cezanne and I, I'm looking at these pictures and saying well that picture of reality well I'm, I'm translating I didn't use it I didn't talk in those terms and I was a good, but I, I, I was realizing that the picture that this person was showing me of the world was totally distinct from a photographic image was totally distinct from the idea of realism the idea that reality is fixed the consensus about what we see is fixed so so I my sister did go on and, and study art and and to the degree in art, I, I didn't. Uh, I took another path, and I, I just was self-taught in that sense. But I was influenced, and, and and she, for example, when I was coming to learn how to stretch or, or build up canvases and and uh, size linen and things like that, I was able to draw on, on on her experience. But that idea of you can see the world differently if you look at what artists do, and it. Then the deeper question with all of this is, well, what is reality? For certain people, they say, that's a good painting, meaning that the painting for them is in accord with the standard view of normal consciousness. It looks like what they see in their head. But artists can go and change that image. They can, they can go behind the, the front. They can simplify, accentuate, purify, so you can perceive the image in a different way. Because if you think about the greatest uh, realistic painting, that really means that it's the greatest illusory painting. Because a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional uh, thing, by definition, is an illusion. We get confused about that. Well, there was a huge shift, I think, in the art world following, I, I suppose it was the development of photography, where uh, the photograph seemed to be uh, such a perfect illusory, but representation of, of reality. It was about then that I think the, the fine artists realized that rather than compete with photography, they could take their artwork in a different direction. I think that's true. I, I think that's, that's uh, true as a, a central statement. Although the qualification would be made by people like David Hockney, who has studied the use of optical devices in the history of art. And his argument is that the use of optical devices, like the camera of Oscura, uh, for example, has been around for a long time. And that most of the great artists who depict very minute detail were utilizing optical devices. So they were very, very aware of this. And we can see this in, in, in ma many great artists. So that awareness was there. And that was very useful when you wanted to make a pre-photographic or a very accurate representation of what was there. But when, as the camera became more, or, or as the possibility of artificial representation, became more widespread uh, then and also as the mass production of pigment pigments and colors and colors and tubes for example um, became more available uh, when people didn't have to mix all the paints themselves well then artists were freer to explore and to move away from what was there beforehand but so, so I mean some a number of 
A lot of art theorists say that the modern period began in, 18, in the 1860s with Manet, for example. But at the same time, we had people like Georgiana Houghton, for example, who was doing her uh, spiritualist paintings. Um, uh, so that, in, in many ways, was a, a movement away from both realities to, 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 to achieve a, a higher reality. But certainly, many artists realized that the thing that an artist can do is to change your idea of what you are seeing. So although the, the Impressionists uh, understood and examined and were very interested in the nature of representation, if you take Surat and his pointillism, he was, he was approaching it in a very scientific way, uh, like pixelation, etc. But uh, other artists said, well, it's more about the feeling. And it began to correspond with other notions of the psychology of the individual uh, and also there was a uh, this this ongoing dilemma that people have this ongoing conflict between the the spiritual view of the world and the materialist view of the world that's that's an important point about the nature of appearances and is it just the appearance of something which is true and what's behind the uh, the appearance and then of course we have the influx flux of science and the influx of the early parapsychologists who are who are looking and the x-rays and all that technology that we've talked about before where people realize that you can see into things and you can see true things and that they had to be able to engage in those processes so hilma of clint for example although uh, it's primarily theosophy and spiritualism which is informing her was also very aware of that uh, scientific background, as was uh, Annie Besant and, and, and the, the, the Theosophists. So they begin to, to go together in the 1860s uh, in particular. Well, I understand a very important influence was a book by Annie Besant and C.W. Ledbetter called Thought Forms, in which they claimed through clairvoyant vision they could see the thoughts. I recall an image of a cathedral and with all sorts of colorful clouds above the cathedral, representing the thoughts, I guess, of the people engaged in probably a mass service in, inside of the cathedral. It's a sense in which artists can begin to convey what's going on in the interior of, of the mind, which is normally invisible to the eyes. Yes, and that would, she would have informed Kandinsky, for example, uh, the great uh, Russian painter who, who came to live in Germany and, and who wrote on the spiritual art in 1910, 1911. So he was very informed by that, and you can see the influence on his earlier expressionistic kind of style so yeah the, the the idea of representing thought forms is the, is is there and in some ways you might argue that if you take owen barfield who was one of the inklings as you know and was was very close to tolkien and c.s lewis and he talks about an earlier form of partic participation in the universe that he believes that that people had before they lost it in some sense, it may be that people are, like Annie Bizant, were identifying a movement 
are trying to reclaim what they believed was there beforehand, as well as as another basis, as well as seeing into things with with science and, and, and understanding that there's all kinds of invisible things, the unseen world that we can't interpret. But I, I would take it back a bit earlier, and the book by William Hewitt in the mid part of the 19th century, The History of the Supernatural, which was a critical book which influenced uh, his daughter, influenced Georgiana Houghton. Now, he was arguing for spiritualism, but this is an important point. The spiritualism meant the supernatural. It was a, He was reacting against the dominance or the, the increasing dominance of the materialist view, which denied any spiritual phenomenon, not just spiritualism, but any spiritual phenomenon. So he wrote the history of the supernatural in the middle part of the century, referring back to examples like the CRS of Proborst that Jung talks about. This was a woman in Germany in the 1820s uh, who had some remarkable experience about remote viewing. But she also, uh, it, it was reported by, by the doctor, she would draw in trance. She would draw circles. She would draw other forms. So in some ways, this spiritualism was an anticipation of people like Hilma of Clint, and really, this goes back to people like Hildegard of Bingen, indicating that there's a constant pattern of spiritual input onto painting uh, and, and creating the, the, the image. So, uh, that, that it's, it's a very long tradition. And one point is important. Spiritualism has become confined in its meaning by materialists to refer to people who communicate with the dead in a narrow sense. And then they usually say, and we found this fraudulent spiritualist, so therefore it's all wrong. But remember that the argument, the use of the term spiritualism was much wider to include all the supernatural. And there's a suggestion that the attack on spiritualism is part of that kind of overzealous materialist agenda, in my view. Well, if we go back to earlier eras, it does seem to me that let's say the high Middle Ages, the church was so powerful and pretty much all art was done under the auspices of, of the church and it was all designed to portray uh, heaven, a permanent reality in heaven and, and the earthly plane, the material plane was viewed as a, a veil of tears where we are passing through temporarily before we reach our eternal home. Uh, I think all of that changed around the time of the Renaissance when the philosophy of humanism became more dominant and people would say man is the measure of all things, not God. Yeah, yes, uh, I, I, I see the thrust of the point. But one would have to say that the idea of humanism didn't emerge from nowhere. The idea of humanism was in Europe fundamentally related to the Judeo-Christian philosophies as informed by the other uh, philosophies, the Hermetic philosophy as it came in through, through Florence and uh, others. So, so if we, we look at ideas of, of the, the human, uh, Mirandola, for example, uh, following on from Ficino in Florence, it came out of the context in Florence where 
we had a synergistic relationship between the church, but they weren't the patrons really. It was the families like the De Medici who were supporting, the De Medici family who were behind the early banking systems, who were utilizing the supposedly non-Christian practice of usury, who were developing mercantile systems and mercantile documents, who, feeling a bit bad for the going against the church, could, could uh, satisfy the church in other ways by providing facilities for, for, for great art. But they saw it as part of a kind of holistic, a holistic approach whereby, well, even warfare, because we had the different city-states there, and we remember that Leonardo da Vinci also developed weapons of war. It, it reminds us of the quote from Harry Lyme in The Third Man, where he says that in Italy they had the Borgias for with 30 years, and they had murder, bloodshed, and terror, uh, and they produced Michelangelo, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. And then he says that in Switzerland, where they had 500 years of peace, um, universal brotherhood, they produced, what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that's true for the people of Switzerland, but you know the point he's making. It's that paradox of, of violence. But there's no question that the church was supporting not just the art and the application of art for higher purposes, but they're also supporting science, and science is very good at denying this background. I argue that a lot of the uh, the evolution of scientific knowledge of about light and optics came within the church tradition uh, and also in the Islamic world. It, it, it came from a theological perspective. And when we see the Renaissance, we see the, in particular with Brunelleschi, we have Giotto and Brunelleschi just before the, the start of the Renaissance, and he develops or rediscovers perspective, going back to the Greco-Roman era. And perspective was really a mathematical solution to creation of images. But it was, it was intensely scientific and mathematical, and the extrapolation from perspective and application to different contexts was very, very important in the evolution of mathematics. But that bit is taken out of, of, of the picture. And people who were around at the time, for example, I think it was Cardinal Del Monte was a, a patron of both Galileo or support of Galileo and of Caravaggio at different times. So they had a different worldview. There's been an oversimplification afterwards. But certainly there was a shift towards the human. The argument would be that this is a consistent evolution of individualism. Oscar Wilde, uh, in, in his uh, great essay, when he was in, in jail, argued that Jesus Christ was the great artist, the greatest individualist. Now, some people believe that from Jesus to Jung is the same trajectory of individuation. And true, the humanism didn't come from anywhere. It wasn't an original idea that didn't come from that cradle and that crucible, from the interaction of, the, of these ideas. And I would argue in the future, the lesson from that is that when you begin to dismantle all the other systems that gave birth to humanism, that humanism will dis disappear as, as a philosophy. It was fundamentally related to a deeper search 
for meaning. Very interesting. Now, if we come back to the modern era where art took a, a, a really strong turn, as you say, around 1860, away from the, well, I think what was known as the academy style of, of art, which was very realistic. And what we see then is that some of that art, such as we've described Hilma of Clint and Kandinsky, had very definitive spiritual origins and, and purposes. On the other hand, some of the most exciting art from that era, uh, for example, the Futurist movement, was very materialistic. And, and I gather the Futurists were a warlike group of people allied with Italian fascism. Well, if you look at some of the manifestos uh, from the Italian Futurist, they celebrate war at the start. They celebrate war technology, speed, unapologetically. It's a kind of, one wonders whether uh, initially, whether it was a joke, uh, when one reads it, is this, is this intentionally provocative? Some of, the, some of the futurist painters I like quite a lot, but their philosophy was very strange. And the idea of the love of the machine, the love of destruction, is inherent in, in that Italian futurism. Now, this is an important point. It's not just the right wing, because the same thing is on the, on the left wing, this destructive, when you, when you have a materialist approach, it doesn't matter where it comes from. They happen to be largely on the right, but it's the same on, on the left. Uh, an idea that the machine is the important thing, that humanity is not important, that it didn't matter if people died, that there was, and there was a very, very strong Nietzschean uh, a Nietzschean impact on that. One artist that that anticipated this, of course, was the great William Blake. And William Blake rem uses words, uses images. He he anticipated and identified exactly this division between the material view and the spiritual view. And another interesting point about William Blake in relation to parapsychology was that in two instances, William Blake said that he got a technical solution from the spirits. In one example, his brother Robert had died. He had seen his brother, his brother's spirit go up from the body, clapping into the other world. And when he was trying to solve a particular printing problem, his brother told him specifically how to do it. So Blake has made and has accepted contributions towards printing. He had a unique style uh, in his etchings. But he got that from his brother in the spirit world. And also, on a, a second occasion, he claimed that... Now, when he said he claimed, I accept his, his statements uh, because I don't see what incentive he had to make it up. So I, I, I accept it. He said that he got... And this is, this is a, maybe a bit more difficult to accept for some people... He got the solution to making a particular type of paint, a distemper. Distemper is generally refers to a mixture of pigment and glue. And he said he got the solution to this problem with distemper from Joseph the carpenter, who I presume is, is uh, from, from Nazareth and uh, from the spirit world. So it's quite incredible, but there, it's an interesting parapsychological example. But he would be, he was the one who, really went against the academy earlier on. He, he hated 
Joshua Reynolds. He believed that he believed that the academy, where he'd started off, was going the wrong way. It was all about measurement. It was all about re- reductionism. It was all about Newton's idea of the world, which was very very limited. And he believed that they had got it wrong. He understood that science could achieve great things, but he believed that the imagination was the most powerful thing. And it was, it was. Uh, I, I listened to your interesting talk about Neville uh, Goddard. Neville Goddard's idea about Jesus and God being the imagination comes from Blake. Blake laid that idea out. He was very, very clear uh, early on, and Goddard uh, accepts that. In your art, in particular, you consider yourself in the tradition of expressionism as an art form or or as a movement within art. Let's talk about the expressionists. What what were they aiming for? Uh, it's a very, very difficult concept, and you can read a whole lot of books, and there's difference. When I talk to people who describe themselves as expressionism, expressionists in, in the theatrical or dance context, it means something different. So, it's a very a lot of these terms are very shorthand, and also we have to consider like in Kandinsky he had a little expressionist phase, and then he moved on from it. And if we look at another artist, for example, Jack Yates, uh, who was William Butler Yeats's brother, and his later phase was quite expressionistic. I don't a lot of his, his earlier work I respect it, but I, it doesn't appeal to me that much. But his expressionist work was was very uh, interesting. And, and he brought in the mythic uh, into his art, and he was close, had close connection with Kokoschka. Um, so that, that tradition of a, a great, deeper, inner uh, a, a expression is important for certain artists at particular periods. So some people may be expressionist for a period and change. But often it re- refers to a particular period from 1905 to 1920, particularly in Germany, uh, and there was particular reasons behind it. Again, Kandinsky came into that for a while. We had the Blue Rider uh, movement, uh, for example, and it covered a period up to the First World War, and I think thereafter, although people say it was a different period, we see the, uh, we, we see the uh, engagement with, with topics and issues or people that weren't engaged with uh, before. So I, I think you have to look also at the period after the First World War in the 20s and the early 30s, because there we have the interwar period where we saw the conflict between the, the fascist and communist idea of the elevation of the Greco-Roman idea of the noble warrior, all these pictures with fine young men with swords and that. Now, that the people who had been to the First World War realized that that's not what war was like. And Germany was full of people who had been crippled and maimed in the war. And some of the painters were saying, well, it's not like that, and this is the reality. And of course, that created great revulsion, which is why one of the reasons why that art was regarded as degenerate. And the, and the Nazis had a degenerate exhibition in 1937. But expressionism, in my view, tends to refer to an effort to reflect, uh, to move away from the idea of looking at a very fixed reality, to explore the power of colour, 
on its own, following on from people like Goethe and the theories of color, to look at the, the spiritual and mystic power of color, line, form. And of course, expressionism informed the Bauhaus and the, the, that, that, the significance of the Bauhaus. It was there in the background for a lot of people involved in the Bauhaus movement who sought, although that seems very formal and in some ways industrial, domestic, they had that idea of colour theory um, which which informed it quite significantly. Um, but as with a lot of these labels, they're, they're, they're very loose. One artist that I would cite uh, whom I have met who was influenced by expressionism is the, is the Irish-born artist Sean Scully. And I've been to his studio in Germany and he was definitely influenced by the, the German ex, expressionist and reinterprets them or those or manifest those influence today. And I think that probably, the, well, their greatest artist, living artist, in my view, is Frank Auerbach, who will be 90 this year. Um, uh, and he, he's, I, I, I've had a good fortune to bump into him three times, and I'm delighted to meet him. I have the greatest respect for him. And for me, his style is expressionist. And in particular, uh, his outdoor pictures, his landscapes, uh, for me, represent the, the greatest, the greatest contemporary art, certainly. Uh, and he has been, he has had models or sitters who have been attending him every week for, for 20 years, for example. It's incredible. Incredible, incredible exploration. He he will be regarded as one of the greatest painters of all time. Uh, not many people know who he is, but it's, it's the same with a lot of these great artists. Another artist, um, we could call him expressionist. I, I I I don't think that label would fit. But in the same vein as Ian Fairweather, a Scottish-born artist who who lived in Australia, and I went to see where he lived. Uh, where he had lived, he lived in a clearing on an island on Bribey Island, north of Brisbane, in a kind of shack. And the 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 art great art critic Robert Hughes went to visit him, and when he visited him to do an interview, he found that the the man was sick. He had gangrene because he had trying he, he tried to feed an iguana a piece of ch cheese from his toe. <laughs> So I, I love these characters, but the, the expressionism for me is is generally generally refers to the use of color. And the, the the other artist that I would refer to as an example, perhaps, is uh, August Macke or August Mack. He was he died in, during the First World War. Uh, his use of color and and this painting is one of his paintings that I, I was thinking about. It's the Turkish Cafe. Very, very simple painting. And I remember when I was in Scotland, in the academic world, and I was kind of coming to the end of it. I had enough, enough of law, enough of regulations, administra the administrative system, the whole lot of it, and of, of my own accord. And I remember sitting in a cafe, talking to someone about some complex procedural thing, and I saw a print of this over their shoulder, and I, I began not to listen to them. And that began to, that particular painting, began to, in its simplicity, began to have an effect on me. So one should not underestimate the, the, the mystic power that an image can have on you. And you don't know sometimes that an image is 
operating on your subconscious or conscious. It can trigger, it can, as Bacon says, open, open the valves of emotion. That's what a, a painting should be able to do. And how it does that is a mystery in many senses. Well, now you've mentioned Francis Bacon, and I'm under the impression that uh, you've also taken uh, quite a bit of inspiration from his work. I, I have done, yeah. I, 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 he would be another person that, that would have been interesting to meet. In, he, he was in, he had a studio near, near where I stayed uh, in, in London. He was, very, he was very interested in the East End. He used to hang around the pubs there with his, his friends, the, some figures from the underworld. And he, he had a studio beside the Thames, although he didn't paint there because it was too bright for him. But I have great admiration for him. I think he was a very deep thinker. Uh, I think his ideas and understanding of the psyche were, were very interesting. I think he had a great... Francis Bacon couldn't draw. And sometimes a limitation is a great advantage. Because he couldn't draw, he had to explore the surface and the application of paint in different ways. Sometimes he flung the, the, the paint at the canvas, and sometimes that can work. His great philosophy was that tradition of chance. He believed that chance was, 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 was very important, that there was a, an, uh, an opportunity that arose through, well, through chance. There's no other way to say it. And he was very interested in, the, in gambling, the roulette table. He lived on Monte Carlo for a while, and he believed that chance in relation to the artistic context was a very important force that you had to learn uh, to utilize. And he has great explanations uh, in, in, in the great interviews he did. For example, he talks about the power of the first, the first stroke on the canvas. He said, if you look at a painter painting a wall, the first stroke has the most power. And then after that, it begins to diminish. And you can think of that when you're painting a wall sometime, that initially it's very impressive and then it's less so. And, but there's a theory behind that and there's an idea that one can take from there in relation to the notion of the power of something which is unfinished. So he's well worth studying and I have a lot of respect, uh, respect for him and his theories. And I think that uh, his, there are some things about him that may come out in the future. I think he was more psychic than people understand. Well, it's very interesting that uh, people who are artists as well as poets and musicians, uh, actors, I think as well, seem to have a personality characteristic known as boundary thinness. That is to say that the, the boundary that they maintain between the inside and the outside of, of their skin is is more permeable than for most people, and that seems to be conducive to psychic functioning. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, and before I move on from Bacon, of course, Bacon utilized pictures of ectoplasm in his portraits and in his pictures very, very clearly. It was, the books were in the studios. It's, it's well established. Um, but I, I think that's, that's right. I think that when you engage in painting, it helps open up your perception. And when you begin to look at painting and look at painting closely, it also opens up your perception. Now, it can do it in a number of ways. It can do it in a kind of cathartic way, whereby one is emptying one's mind 
uh, of images of colors so that one can perceive better. Uh, that, that, that idea is there as well. And also by establishing links, a concatenation between different contexts, it may enable or form links in the mind so that we can see relationships that are not as obvious uh, other, otherwise. But I certainly found that uh, the painting process has a number of psychic effects. For example, occasionally one will really enter into a flow state and one is sometimes left depending on your style, but particularly in an expressionist style, one is left with a painting that one has not been very conscious that one produced. It was almost from the subconscious. One was not thinking. And that's the classic, the classic flow state. Another phenomenon that I noticed in my paintings, painting in that style, was that you, you could see th premonitions that were not obvious, that you weren't conscious of when you were doing it, but when you look back and compare it, it's quite clear what it was. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was in Spain after in, in the Basque country, I'd been, I was just finishing teaching uh, and I was going to have a, a week along the uh, San Diego de Compostela and the, I've been looking forward to it and then go back to Ireland. And, the day, about the last uh, two days before I was going to, to leave, uh, a bird came into the house, which wasn't, wasn't pleasant, as you can see where this is going. A bird came into the house, and that night I was listening to Foray's Requiem, and I got a knock on the door, which was uh, someone telling me that my mother had died 30 years ago. So that was sudden, uh, and I had talked to her about death, it was, it was, although it was sudden, she had had a near-death experience and she had explained to me that she had no fear of death, that the experience of, of the near-death experience had taken away her fear and she was looking forward to, to, to the next world. So she really believed that. She felt in many ways her job had been done. So when I heard that, uh, because of that fact that she had communicated that to me, uh, I, I contextualized what had happened. But when I looked back at the paintings that I'd done, just before that, it was very clear to me that I anticipated a woman lying in, in, in the coffin that was her, that I wasn't thinking of at the time that I did it. I did a figure lying down, a female figure, and then when you look at it retrospectively, it was, a, it was an, some kind of anticipation in my view. And that anticipation uh, has happened in relation to other contexts. For example, before I moved to Scotland, I believe that I, I, I don't have the, the painting here. I'm not sure where it is, but I, there, I did a painting which I think anticipated the town that I, I was going to live in when I went to teach in an institute of technology. And there were particular elements which, for me, in the picture, in a kind of surrealist, expressionist style, that were too, too much beyond chance from my perspective, and I'm not trying to convince anyone else of that. All I'm saying is that painting can have a premonitionary uh, power, that it can develop your powers of, or, your premon or, or manifest, perhaps, powers that we all have, or, or, or kind of psychic powers, and it can certainly open up one's ability to perceive the world, or to reinterpret the world, or to re escape from, if you have a very narrow, blinkered view of reality, to help one emerge from a very narrow view, to see the world different, to see the beauty in ordinary things, to look differently. Artists look at things. 
people that appreciate art look at things differently. They can interpret things in a wider way and see beyond a very narrow, literal view of what they're engaging with. So I think that that the, the nature of engagement in art helps with that. And again, your great hero, William James, talked about the stream of consciousness. I think that uh, when we think about these things, he also, he also did refer to the screen of consciousness at some stage. So in many senses, uh, we could think of our minds as a kind of uh, as a kind of gauze that that experience flows through that catches things it is a screen that sometimes we have to clear or sometimes uh, we have to get rid of things that are there we have to make manifest images that preoccupy us so um uh, yes I, I i think you're that statement is true the relationship is very very close and furthermore to finish up on that point that I believe that the history of art is going to be rewritten and that the the real driving force of all great art has been the spiritual world and appreciation of the spirit. And that although there's contrary movements, that the manner, the, in, particularly in painting, it will, re, it will re-establish itself and that awareness will be rewritten, especially when people like Hildegard of Bingen, Georgiana Houghton, Hilma of Clint, Lucy Larga, Bielka, all those figures are put into the proper context uh, and that when they're not denied because their spiritualist view of the world doesn't fit with a modern contemporary uh, materialistic reductionist view. Well, James Tunney, once again, a fascinating conversation. It was rich. It was deep. And ironically, I know we've just scratched the surface in the vast world of, of the fine arts so I look forward to more conversations with you. We can probe these things yet to another level. But for now, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. I'd look forward to it. Can I just finish the last point? I don't want to, to, to leave you so abruptly. <laughs> just about the power of painting. And you probably know this little story, but in 1944, when the Allies were uh, moving up toward true Italy, they surrounded the city of San Sepulcro and the, the person in charge of the artillery was commanded to start the bombardment of San Sepulcro. And he was a bit concerned because it, the name rang a bell. And of course, San Sepulcro refers to the Holy Sepulchre. It was a place where people stopped off on their way to Jerusalem. And he remembered that he had read an article by Aldous Huxley. And the article stated that he believed that the mural by Piero della Francesca, which was on the town, the Palazzo della Residencia, in the center of San Sepulcro, was one of the greatest pieces of art, if not the greatest piece of art in the world. And this was in the mind of the, the gunner or the person in charge of the decision to, uh, to launch an artillery, artillery attack. And because of that, he didn't obey orders and he, and, and he stalled in relation to the bombardment. Now, as it happens, the remaining Germans in San Sepulcro withdrew and they didn't have to bombard the, uh, the city. But it's remarkable how the power of a painting through that concatenation of events led to the saving from bombardment of the town. And it, it reveals the possibility and the kind of mystic almost power of art 
to change views, as people like Nicholas Rorich, who we talk about again, have shown that culture is all our, we, we, we all own it, it's universal, and that we have to protect it, and that we have to be inspired by it, and it can have power to combat mili- militarism. What a wonderful example to close with, James. Once again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. I enjoy the conversation as always. Appreciate that. Thank you. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.